This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel, it's Steve. I hope you're doing well. I am recording this on a Tuesday, so it's just before episode four of the podcast is coming out. And um, I took a look on iTunes and I wanted to take a moment to say thank you to everybody who has rated and reviewed the show so far. I really appreciate that and glad to hear that people are enjoying the show. And so I'm going to especially say thank you to Dragonfly, who in their review of episode one of the show said that the first episode is very moving. I could listen to Steve and Lowry chat all day long. And I also want to take a moment to thank everybody who has contacted me directly with feedback about the show. I really appreciate that. It's great to know how it is landing with people. Um, definitely welcome your feedback. You can always just get in touch with me directly, steve at sensitiverebel.com or leave a review and a rating on iTunes. That would be excellent as well. Now, today on the show, I have two very special guests, um, the ladies of Lionel's Place, and this is a mother-daughter duo, Karen Betts and Hannah Howerton. And I've known Karen and Hannah for a number of years. They're part of the local creative community here in Sacramento, and they're great, and their book is just fabulous. I love this book. I love the story. I love what it's about. and. I don't wanna uh, spoil anything here, just to say I think you're gonna really enjoy hearing about the book, hearing about what they do, the work that they do in taking the story into the schools, uh, about the origin of Lionel's place and who inspired that, some of the challenges and struggles and successes that they've had on their creative journey, how they work together as a team, and, and a whole bunch more. So we had a really fun conversation. It was great to be able to catch up with them, and I'm happy to share that conversation with you now. So I am pleased to welcome Karen Betts and Hannah Howerton to the Sensitive Rebel podcast. How's it going, ladies? Hi. Great. <laughs> Absolutely great. Nice to see you. <laughs> yeah, good to see the two of you too. I have known Karen and Hannah for a while because they are local here to, to Sacramento and part of our, our great creative community. Um, just have not actually seen them in person so much because of course of COVID and all of that. So um, anyway, so you may hear some of that coming into the conversation because we have known each other, known each other for a while here. So where I want to start is by asking you the question I ask everyone. What are the two of you rebelling against? I think that's a good question. The number one thing would be bullying and bullying of people who are different. Any type of differences. Right, Hannah? I think that's... Yeah, that's the key right there. Anything that anyone who chooses to pick on someone for being, for standing out, that is what we are up against such an awesome cause and that's part of why i wanted so much to talk to the two of you because i think it's such an important thing and that'll lead us perfectly into the two of you being able to share a little bit about your business and what you do the origin of it and all of that so tell us all about it so it all started with our children's book the little lemon that lapped my mom wrote it i illustrated it and it ultimately teaches the lesson that what makes us weird is exactly what makes us wonderful. And the message is very important to us, actually, because my grandpa is the one who inspired it and the way that he raised his kids. And my mom can talk a little more about that if she doesn't cry. <laughs> it's been a little sensitive. It's been five years since we lost him just this month. So um, in some ways, it seems like forever. In some ways, it seems like yesterday. Yeah, And you know how that is. Absolutely. But when I was a child, I tell kids all the time in our school presentations that when I grew up in his home, he taught me all kinds of lessons. I say he put tools in my toolbox of life and I use them, those tools every day. And there was one tool that he gave me and lesson that he taught me more than any other. And and I tell this to kids too. It wasn't just with his words. It was through actions. And that's a big deal when you're a kid, to see the example, to not just have lip service. And so 
through his words and with his actions, he taught me never, ever to make fun of anyone for being different, that differences are to be celebrated, and that's what makes the world wonderful. And the world would be extremely boring if we were all the same. So he really instilled that in me. And when we came up with the idea with for the book, it was literally uh, one sentence in my no- notebook, The Little Lemon Leapt Without Fear. And Hannah was like, Mom, that's the children's book you always wanted to write. You write it. I'll illustrate it. She had never illustrated anything in her life, but we feel like it was just destiny. It was meant to be, and it all came together over about 18 months, right? Yeah, definitely. And then that time we went through dips and dives through the creative process of how to get that message to kids. And in the end, we ended up with a group of characters who all represent something different. So we have... uh, penguin, they're all oxymorons in a way, a penguin who finds a way to fly, a fox who is vegan, a buffalo who dances ballet. We're breaking gender roles. And then the star of the show is a little lemon. (laughs) Who leaps from his tree to see the world. (laughs) And the whole point is lemons don't leap. They're supposed to stay on the tree and wait for their destiny. And, And Lionel, who's obviously named after my dad, doesn't want to do that, but he doesn't realize he's different. And when we do these presentations to kids, it's unbelievable how it touches them and the questions that we get at the end, right? Yeah, definitely. And what's so interesting about it is that it's not a simple children's book with the level of vocabulary. My mom really filled it with a lot of big, fun, whimsical words. And even the littlest kids who you would think sometimes like part of it would be going over their heads. In the end, they ask us the deepest questions of why things that we slipped into the book, little subtle things like that Lionel the lemon is bullied on the tree before he leaps. That's not something we just come out and say. It's something we show subtly and We'll have six-year-olds ask us, why was he bullied on the tree? Or, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, why were they mean to him? Yeah, why were they mean to him? And they're absorbing it on a very deep level, which is the best part. (laughs) It seems almost like the fact that these messages are in a story form actually enhances their ability to get through the kids. They're clearly picking up on this stuff, even though it's not, as you said, it's overt. So it seems like that almost makes it easier for the message to come in. I think we didn't want to hit the kids over the head with it. Kids are smarter than that. So we just didn't want to say, don't bully. We we wanted to, to do it a different way. So through Hannah's really stylized illustrations that are not super childlike, like they're, they're, a broad base of appealing to different ages. So between that and the weird words that I use, that even sixth, seventh, eighth grade kids are like, this is a cool book. Like, I like this. I like the message. I like the words. And then I wanted the book to have a rhythm, but I didn't want it to rhyme. And I absolutely love Dr. Seuss, but I didn't want it to be a rhyming book like that. I I wanted a rhythm. So her name is Hannah Helena Howerton, (laughs) H-H-H. So alliteration has been one of my favorite things for a super long time. So I wanted to use alliteration as my rhythm. And there were some days where I was like, why did I do this? Because trying to get the message you want, the characters you want, have the alliteration, it becomes, it's, It's not as easy as you would think to get that all (laughs) in a concise children's book that you really don't want to be over X number of words or so many pages because of their attention spans. There's so many different threads here that I want to kind of uh, pull at. So I'm sure I will end up missing some of them and we'll see how I do about that as well as keeping them in order. But what you were just talking about, I think, is something really a lot of people don't see this, right? They think, oh, kid's book. It's just this simple little thing, whatever, no big deal. But I think you hit on a real point. The format of it actually creates certain very specific challenges that can make it maybe harder in some ways than some other forms of expression or writing, right? I mean, one of the nice things here is I'm I don't have a script. I don't have I'm just gonna <laughs> kind of go off the cuff and that, you know, that that works better for some people than others. But tell me more about the process of creating the book. And the challenges that each of you, I'd like to hear each each of your own stories of the challenges that you had during that and how you wrestled with those in pushing it through to getting it completed over this um, 18 months, right? That was how long you said? 
Right, over 18 months. Yeah. Uh, so one of the most interesting parts of the way that we went about this was that we did it side by side, which is pretty rare for a children's book. Usually words will be written, and then somewhere else in the world, someone will be paired up as an illustrator to add the pictures to them. But in our situation, we did it side by side. So she would come up with some words. I would doodle something, say, how about this? Then I might draw something funny that made the story go a slightly different direction. And we would feed off of each other that way. Um, so it's it was really unique. But through that process, also being mother and daughter and being able to, you know, be blunt and about what we liked or didn't like, that was, I'm sure, much different than most scenarios as well. But one of the biggest challenges for me that I had to overcome was learning to let go of things that we had spent a lot of time working on. Because there were definitely a couple of moments where we ended up down a road where we committed a lot of time down that road, but mm -hmm. then realized, oh, it would be much better overall if we backtracked a little bit, scratched that, and then moved forward in another direction. And we got better at that with time, but learning to let things go is definitely part of the creative process. And I feel like we polished that skill yeah. through, the, through that year or two. I would agree with that. We were each other's editors. And we, you know, as mother-daughter, you can push a little harder than you would if it was more of a professional. It is a professional relationship, but if it, if it wasn't family, there were moments where I would write words and she would go, Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would be like, I worked for two hours on that one sentence, getting it just right. And she's like, nope, not good. And then, for example, your turtle, I was like, I hate that turtle with the passion of a thousand burning flames. That turtle is not going to be, he looks mean, remember? Yeah. And she loved the turtle. But then when she looked at the turtle through my eyes, you were like, I can see that. And and we sacrificed him. That was one. But lots of... Lots <laughs> poor turtle. Of, yeah, the poor turtle. He may he show up cut. in another, yeah, <laughs> maybe a, another book someday. But I think Hannah's right. As a creative we're hardest on ourselves. It's just the way it is. And when you've poured so much energy in one direction, it's so hard when you see that isn't going not to just keep trying to push through in that direction. We learned these hours that I put in here, even if I don't end up here, that time was not wasted because it got me here. So you have to see that as not a waste of time, but part of your creative journey and part of the process that I can let that go and know I couldn't have gotten to here without going through there. And I think that really helped us a lot. And we tell kids that a lot, too, just in lessons in their life, if they draw or if they're writing, we talk to them about journaling and we tell them just don't get hung up on that and let it go and move. Just keep moving forward, I think. Absolutely. I love that. One of the things I don't like about this medium is I can't highlight things in the moment. Like I'm, I'm like imagining reading a book and I would be reading that, that sentence you just said, I'd be like highlighting I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that exactly. Because you're right. The process piece is so important and it, it is not always linear, not maybe ever linear, <laughs> but if you follow it, even if there are pieces you discard along the way and all of that, absolutely, that still leads you to a good place. Mm -hmm. Clearly, the two of you get that. How much would you say you understood that before you started this? And how much of it was something you learned through creating it? Personally, I think that that was something that I learned while creating it. With this, there was definitely a point halfway through illustrating the book where I literally started from scratch. And at that point, it was actually because I had polished my skills. I was getting better. And I realized that what I had done before that point did not... Uh, line up with what I had done <laughs> right. in the middle portion of that. So getting rid of basically half the book, that was a very big learning point in terms of this. Being this able subject. to let it go. Yeah. And for me, I was a journalism major and a, with a minor in English, many papers, many creative papers, many term papers. I knew that's part of the process. I just never really liked leaning into it. <laughs> It's always, you know, I think part of that is much of that you're a student and you want the quickest end and you're like, okay, 
this is a difference between an A and A minus or A minus and B. I'm not going to take the time to go back and do that. I had started another book, which I still have to finish, and it was a chapter book, not a picture book. And I was starting to go through that with that book when I tucked it away in a drawer, and that's where it stayed. So it's like I knew in order to go forward, I was going to go have, have to go back and do some editing, and I just stopped. But with this one, because we were in it together, because we had this mission and we knew our vision that we had for the book and to make a difference and dedicated to Grandpa, we did the work. We pushed ourselves to do it the right way. Yeah, we saw yeah. it through. And maybe that's the difference is maybe before mm -hmm. we both had an awareness is that that's what you should do. But it's very easy in a project like the book she was working on. If you don't have someone else keeping you accountable, it's very easy to put it in the drawer and then <laughs> not go back to it because it's tough. But we definitely kept each other accountable. I mean, if you haven't talked about it or are doing it alone, might not even be anyone else who knows, right? I want to come back to the the mission piece. So the fact that this was inspired by Hannah, your grandfather, Karen, your your, your um, father, how much did that sense of him and, and the mission piece related to that, how important do you think that was to being able to see this project through? I think very important. He actually had cancer, but was um, still alive when we were writing the book. And when we brought the book home from the printer, he was the first one that got to see it. So that was really neat. But I think just knowing that he probably was in a, a limited time in his life and that this was something that he had given to us and we wanted to share it because dad was always teaching. You, Hannah, was going through some of your stuff the other day when you just would find little notes from grandpa. And yeah. one of the things when he says, when he wrote on a note card, when you look back at your life, how was that? Yeah, He's, he wrote a note and it, he had a funny way of doing this. He would write it on just basically anything. If he had a something napkin. in his mind, yeah. But he would always date it and always sign it, grandpa with a W <laughs> at the end. And he said, when the sun begins to set and you look back at your life, you'll want to look back and say, I'm proud of the way I lived. And Sim uh, simple, right? Yeah. Simple. But always. So powerful, right? Yeah. <laughs> so powerful. That that was my dad. He, I, I often say he wasn't a perfect man, but he always did the right thing. I cannot think of one example in my dad's life where he didn't do the right thing. And we just wanted to do the right thing by him. So I think it did push us. I think it would have been easy for her to go on after graduating from college and do a, you were working at a different job at that time, but to just let this simmer in the background and maybe one day, oh, one day. And I was settled in not really working at that time, doing more caregiving with my dad and helping my mom out. And we could have let it slide. But I think just having that vision of how we wanted dad to be remembered kept us going too. And the lesson and what it meant to us and what we knew it would mean to kids. And they do. So many kids connect with him. Like they'll ask about him in the Q&A afterwards, which is really interesting. And we had a couple of situations where we did readings in Stockton. And in two of the situations, there were boys who had lost their dads to gang violence within, you know, three months or so or a month of us doing our presentation. And the, one of the teachers said, one little boy afterwards, he came up to her and he said his favorite part about our presentation was me talking about my dad. And I thought that was so interesting because there are lots of ways you touch kids with your story. And this was a way. And she said dad had been a trigger word right up until that point. Yeah. And he had not even been able to use the word dad and that that really touched him. And he saw my love and related it to his love for his dad. Every time we talk to kids, it touches them in a different way. That's so cool. And my dad was a different guy, too. He embraced weird. Perfect. He was he was doing all the things before they were cool. You know, Mr. Organic, Mr. Making His Own Wine, Mr. Like everything he did was ahead of his time. He was born in 1936. He always embraced what made him different for sure. That's great. It's And it's, I mean, obviously, Kinti has such a, um, a ripple effect here 
through, you know, through what he taught to the two of you and you've passed on through this work that you've created and all of that, which is, is really, really cool. And I think that's for all of us a thing that we don't even know what our work will do as far as who it will touch or how it will affect people. I'm sure that the same way that these kids who you talk to when you present in schools and people who read your book, they may share these ideas onto other people that you won't even necessarily ever know or hear about. That is one of those things that is always so surprising to us, how people love the message and want to share it. And we will get book orders from all over America from people who someone gifted it to them. And then they in turn want to gift it for a birthday or a shower, or we do lots of local selling. But to get those orders online and hear people who love the book and someone pass it to them because it was their favorite children's book. It touches people in a different way because so many of us feel different. That's the bottom line. Absolutely. And I want to come back around to that because that's such um, an important topic and obviously really the core message here. But before I do, the other thing I want to talk a little bit more about is one, the relationship between the two of you in creating this, and two, the challenge of creating something that's tied to this sense of mission and this very important person in your life. And then the two of you having your own ideas and opinions and being willing to you know, critique each other's you know, work here. I think for some people, that would be really challenging, but it sounds like the fact that your mother-daughter actually made this work better. I would say so, for sure. I mean, I don't know that everyone could do that, but in our situation, we've always been so close that we could. A lot of people might go into business to, with family and maybe it creates tension that they're relationship can't withstand. But in our situation, we could withstand the bluntness that I talked about earlier and our relationship even strengthened from it. <laughs> I think so. Spending so yeah. much time together and being vulnerable together because you're right. It's like it's part of you. It's your child, whether it's her illustration or my words, my creativity, or even other things as our business has grown, other ideas. Mm -hmm. You're very vulnerable when you put them out there even to each other but we have we feel like now we're that's kind of our safe space right yeah with each other <laughs> it's like pretty safe but that's like before it ever gets introduced to the world we're gonna sound it off of each other and make yeah. sure it's not absolutely horrible that safety is absolutely critical and how would you say you've come to that space and how do you hold on to that awareness that, yeah, here's this idea I have and I don't know if it's good or if it sucks. How do you hold on to that idea? But yeah, it, this is a safe space. Is that something you have to think about? Is that something that's just ingrained now or what? Uh, some, it, both. There are, there are definitely times where I know that I'll have one idea in my head and then she'll suggest a different idea to me and I'll be like, no, but I'm thinking this. But that doesn't mean that her idea isn't great. It's easy if you already have a predetermined path in your mind to shoot down an alternate path <laughs> until thinking it through. And I think that that's something that we're both working on getting better at all the time. And it's not always a squeaky clean perfect road but we figure it out <laughs> we can read each other's facial expressions pretty well at this point that <laughs> we have an ongoing joke that if we're i'm coming out with this a really exciting idea in my head and i'm saying it to hannah and i see her face i'll i'll do this little uh or something like that and kind of mumble <laughs> on it. so or or something like that like that it seemed really great in my brain and as it's coming out of my mouth and i see your face it's maybe not as good but at least it's an idea that now has has life because I've put it out there. Yeah. And then again, it's like it, it starts here and then it bounces off of her and then she bounces it back to me. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, but that, oh, yeah. And to be able to bounce, I think we're so lucky as creatives to be able to bounce off each other. I mean, it's just really great because it, you get inside your own head as a creative and you think something's one way. And then the more you're in your own head and you're doing it, the more afraid you are to share it with the world, to be criticized. But once I've shared yeah. it in my safe place, didn't that make it easier for us? Yeah, Even with I our don't... Kickstarter, it was easier because we had been vulnerable with each other, I think. 
Yeah, that's interesting because I don't feel like either of us are really afraid to share our work anymore with the world. In fact, we, in the beginning, it was such a big deal if we wanted to invest in putting a new design on a magnet or a different product. And we were afraid of the initial investment money-wise, but also afraid of, oh, well, how will this do or be perceived? And now I feel like we're like, yeah, let's try it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And we've taken away that hesitancy that maybe wastes time a little bit when it comes to that part of it, for sure, with actually getting it out in the world. (laughs) Obviously, the practice with sharing these things with each other in the safe environment is a piece of that. What else do you think has contributed to making that an easier thing for the two of you to do? I think a little bit of success helps for sure. Just success and not necessarily financial, although when your book sells or your art sells, you get that little hit of rush. But pre-COVID, being able to interact with customers face-to-face and see how they responded to designs and seeing them laugh or seeing parents of a child who feels different come up and say, oh, this, my child is going to love this. Seeing different emotional responses, happy, sad, laugh, whatever, it definitely helps when you are face-to-face with your customer and you get to see that interaction, which you do when you go to different events, like craft events. I don't know if all creatives really get that experience, but we have really bloomed because of it, I feel. That's so true. And then, like you said, when you have a parent or a child at a school come up or a teacher reach out and say, this made such a difference in this child's life. I can't tell you. Like the little boy that just carried Lionel around everywhere. And we have have many stories like that. And there are some days, I mean, let's be honest, we had this Zoom thing the other day and I was like, gosh, I haven't done it in a long time. I really don't want to do this today. And then I said to Hannah, what child are we going to touch today? That's, That's what we say before Every presentation, we look at each other and we say, who are we going to touch? And let let us say what we're supposed to say for them, because it can go in so many different directions, like I said earlier. But I think hearing that, then it makes you want to do more and write more and create more and make more things when you realize that, oh, my goodness, we are making a difference. Not as big of a difference as some, but more of a difference than just sitting in my living room watching Netflix. More of a difference than putting the notebook back in your drawer. More of a difference <laughs> than putting the notebook back in my drawer. Exactly. We're we're making a difference. And I think that definitely keeps us inspired to to be vulnerable because it's never fun to be vulnerable. But like Hannah said, it's gotten easier for us between each other and the positive feedback and the, the idea that we are making a difference. And every day isn't perfect and every decision isn't perfect, but we figure it out. I'm hearing though that the two of you by now have really internalized this knowledge and this understanding that what you've created touches people, that it has an impact, that it makes a difference, even though you don't know when or where. And it sounds like that's something the two of you have both been able to internalize and can turn to even on those days where you're like, I don't really know if I feel up for this. You can turn to that. They go, no, wait a second. There's someone out there we're going to touch. We don't know who, we don't know how. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we're lucky because we get the feedback from kids in a school visit or letter, an email from a teacher or a principal or a librarian. But like Hannah said, we've done so many in-person events that we have parents come up and say, you're the little lemon book? You don't understand. You came to their school and this has changed their life. He always feels different. And now when he does, we sit down and read the book together and we get that a lot. That definitely helps you go, we're achieving our goal. Our goal in the beginning was to make a difference in one child's life. Mm -hmm. If we make a difference in one child's life, writing this book will have been worth it. Mm -hmm. And now five, six years into it, we can go, we've, we know it's much more than one child and not just kids, it's adults. And finding the niche of how much our message has spoken to kids on the autism spectrum. And we've heard that just over and over and over 
through parents and teachers. And there is something even more than the message. They'll come and tell us that it's also the vocabulary that they feel like that speaks to them in a way because lots of kids on the spectrum like bigger, different words. They have a different way of processing that information. And they feel like this book actually they hear it like it was written for them. So that's really special too, to know that we're making a difference with that group. Is that something you were consciously trying to do while you were creating it? I've only shared this a little bit with a handful of people probably in the booth, but we realized at the end of my dad's life as we came, became more aware of the spectrum of autism and Asperger's and high-functioning autistic people that my dad was definitely on the spectrum. And I think that's what made him so fabulous and in some ways so fearless of showing vulnerability and what he cared about and protecting and to just always do the right thing because, well, of course you do the right thing, you know? It's black and white. It's black and white. <laughs> it's simple. You just do the right thing. And so knowing that, we definitely like to say to each other and to some people that Lionel the lemon is on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. He definitely, you can see it in the book, his little things that he says, he'll say things maybe he shouldn't, you know, when he's calling out, you know, Slaz can't climb mountains or whatever, you know, maybe you shouldn't have said that, Lionel, but we didn't know that it would touch that group in such an unbelievable way that it has. The neurodiverse crowd has been like, this book was written for me. And so we have our whole Celebrate Neurodiversity line that Hannah created. And that's really important to us because that's really the crux of all of this. It's who my dad was. It's who our main character is. And it's touching many kids who feel different, but kids on the spectrum are definitely a big part of that. Oh, absolutely. And that's it's so fabulous. I think that you have created something for them to be able to identify with and relate to and connect to, um, to help give them, it sounds like inspiration, really, to be able to own who they are and to be more comfortable being who they are, which is so important because they, of course, have valuable things to contribute to the world. And so it's, it's fabulous that your work is helping them to be able to do that. That's really cool. We, we think it's pretty cool. Too. We think it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Good. And so let's talk some about identity, right? And this, this whole core idea, choose weird and embrace your uniqueness. And I'm interested for really both of you, because you've both experienced it through your lives in your own ways, but how the messages that you got from Lionel have influenced your actions in childhood into adulthood about what you did, what you pursued, how you did it, and any interesting stories or experiences along that journey as you've found your own respective identities and weirdness. You on the school bus. So That's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely bullied. I tell the kids in presentations that I was bullied on the school bus for being different because I was a bookworm and I wore glasses and I would, I tell them I would carry because I liked big books with big weird words. And so I, and we didn't have backpacks. So I'm carrying these big books and I had a one hour each way bus ride. I would get on the bus and stick my nose in the book and kids would throw things at me. They would say, oh, you're just pretending to read. You can't read that. You think you're so smart. Stop reading. And I tell kids, you know, but in that moment, really the joke was on them because while they were stuck on that hot school bus for an hour, I was traveling all over the world in my imagination to places that a little girl could never see in Hannibal, Missouri. I never had seen a mountain or the ocean. And so for me as a child, feeling different, and my grandma was from Czechoslovakia, and we had a situation where my dad was raised in a little village where there were like 11 languages spoken in his village. So he knew about differences. He knew that the hung Hungarian man on the hillside taught him about milking his cow and how you do this. And the Italian man made dad his wine for his bachelor party. And the Russian lady was my grandma's best friend and they could kind of 
communicate because Czech and uh, Russia, the language is pretty similar. And so as different as they were, there were common ground. And there was common ground that because they all came for the steel plant that was on the river. And so word got back to the old country that, oh, there's work, come. So they came through Ellis Island and ended up there. And so we grew up you know, harvesting mushrooms from the woods and eating bizarre Czech food and sauerkraut. We were weird. We were weird kids. There was a a little boy that was on the school bus with me. His name was Freddie April. And he came from a situation where his mom had left when he was really young and his dad was like in his 80s. So his the mom was much younger and the dad was extremely abusive. And I know they had been trying to take him out of the home. Well, Freddie was a bookworm too. So he and I kind of bonded on that level. And my dad, being the man that he was, would always have me take gifts to Freddie at Christmas. And And then take him things on the playground, maybe when other kids weren't watching, that would be new shirts that he could have. And and so we could have clean clothes for school. And we both volunteered in the library. And during Christmas, we had a gift exchange. So, you know, in, in your classroom, you had your Christmas gift exchange. Well, we also got a bonus library gift exchange. And so <laughs> the librarian was a special lady, too, and had taken Freddie under her. And he was brilliant, which is kind of where the story's going. She took him under her wing. And so she uh, had pulled us aside and said, now Freddie's really excited about his gift. So whoever gets it, please be kind and be excited. And guess who got the gift? (laughs) Which was a God thing. I mean, I was meant to get Freddie's gift because it was in this old time card box when cards used to come, you know, like miscellaneous reading cards with birds on the top and they're like 50. And it was tied together with rubber bands. And inside it was this dirty wooden beaded necklace that was kind of half broken. It had been his mom's. It was something she had left. And I went full Oscar because I was never going to let this little boy think that I didn't love his gift. And I can remember to this moment, and it was, you know, second grade, third grade, Freddie, I love it so much. Oh my gosh, this is the best gift ever. And I went on and on and on. And he was shining from ear to ear, you know, and I was watching all the other kids get their yo-yo or all their things that I wanted. And I just kept smiling. I made it the one hour ride home on the school bus and I was going down the sidewalk and my mom opened the door and tears just started pouring down my face. And she goes, what's wrong? And I said, I got Freddie April's gift. (laughs) But I never let him know. And Freddie April went on to major in nuclear physics at Harvard. Wow. And yeah. And my dad took those beads and put them in a Christmas ornament for me. He kept them all of those years, put a tag and said, Christmas gift from April Boy. And he dated it because that's how my dad worked. And then years later, they put it in a Christmas ornament. And that's my most cherished ornament in my life. Not because it reminds me of this different kid who grew up to be something so spectacular, but the fact that I did the right thing by him. I did. As a little child, that's not the easiest thing to do, but that was what my dad instilled in me. Absolutely. So that would be an example of (laughs) early on how he shaped who I was. So, right. Well, so before I, I I do want to give you a turn, Hannah, but before I want to, I want to ask one more thing for you, Karen. So you're on the bus reading and it sounds familiar when I was, not that I took a school bus, but when I was older and would get around town on a bus, I was always reading and reading whenever I could too. And, but no one ever threw things at me, thankfully. I don't know how I would have responded to that. But, <laughs> but I mean, you're getting people throwing things at you and, and basically being like, you know, going after you for this. How did you deal with that? Like, how did that feel? What did you do? Did you talk to your dad about it? I don't remember sharing that with my dad, actually. That's interesting because he was protective and sensitive and it probably would have really bothered him. I was a kind of an introverted kid, shy. I mean, I was into my books, so... I wasn't the big talker that I am today. It it obviously stuck with me for a lifetime, but I don't know that I carried it too far into home in my evening as a child. I didn't share that with my dad. I shared a lot with my dad, other things, but that I think I just kind of held inside a little bit, maybe, but I, I don't feel that it was something that festered. 
You know, I don't remember that. I I think probably because I was doing what I loved. You know, it might have been different if they had made fun of a physical part of me or I'm, you know. It wasn't connecting to an insecurity, it sounds like. It was like, yeah, so what? I'm reading. What's the big deal? (laughs) I think that's it. Now that I've never thought of it that way, but now that we're talking about it, because I feel like even though they were bullying me, And I always tell the kids, did I stop reading my books? No. And that's how I got to grow up and write my very own children's books. So what made me weird as a kid? Look, I have this wonderful book now. I think it's because I loved reading and I probably was like, well, you guys are the ones missing out. I'm like knee deep in this great book and learning about this guy who sailed around the world alone. So I think I was strong enough and had a strong enough sense of self to not let that bother me. But had they maybe said something more personal, it could have for sure. No, that strong sense of self and that awareness of this is what I like and that's fine, that I would imagine is at least in part attributable attributable to your father. I think so. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and then that's what I was, you know, thinking as well is it's just the trickle-down effect because that's how he raised her and then that's how she raised me. And I had similar experiences when I was a kid, maybe not reading on the school bus, but I definitely got bullied a lot in elementary school. And I always think it didn't phase me. It didn't bother me, maybe because of the strong support I had at home. Like I always had this family that loved me and embraced who I was and helped me I don't know, just gave me confidence in myself. And because when I was a kid, I was always playing with the boys. I loved to play wall ball. I loved to play basketball. I was this itty bitty thing. And I was trying to be tough out on the playground. And I was the biggest tomboy you could find. I liked to do hands-on things. And I liked to, you know, um, I remember wanting to play games that were more like imagination based on the playground and do things that were fostering my creativity. And the fact that I continue to do that is probably part of why I'm able to hone into my creativity today. And so it's definitely whatever it is that you are putting time and energy into. As a kid, I imagine that if you're allowed to do that, it can come out in you know positive ways as an adult. I definitely feel like I can tap into my creativity today because I was allowed to as a child without fear of being picked on or worry about the kids who were picking on me. Because you had that is support for that coming from your mom. Yep. <laughs> I think that that's absolutely true that right these pieces of our identity and ourself that if we don't have some support for that it can be a thing that we maybe reject or have a conflicted relationship but for the two of you having that embraced and supported from the parental figure it sounds like was a thing that really provided a um, kind of an anchor or a rock for you to to have to hold on to even in the face of bullying and and those kind of challenges i yeah. think that's exactly right and just to know you're loved unconditionally is a big thing i think you take it for granted when you're raised that way And my dad was very affectionate. He wasn't afraid to show love, to to be touchy and huggy and um, a big smooch on yeah, yeah. He just (laughs) he loved big, and the result of that is is good stuff. Not everyone gets that. No, and so that's what has been floating around in my head the last few minutes is. I, I have to imagine that a lot of the the kids who go to these schools that you speak at and kids who see your book, they may not necessarily have had that sort of support. So what do you see from them about how that bullying affects them and then how your work serves to to counter that? I think that it's really apparent in schools that we visit you can see right away in the engaged kids in the whether we're at title 1 school where they're the kids it's like they're happy if 
they're there. They may not have a coach. They may not have had breakfast. You know, the parents didn't they feed them. They don't have the same resources at school. They don't have the same resources yeah. at school. We visited one school where the library was a little shelf in a hallway and had maybe 20 books on it. That was their school library. And, you know, you go to another school where their library is just extraordinary in a district with money. And so I think there are some kids that can easily relate to love and a story like ours, but there are many kids and the ones that we really want to touch that even just standing in front of a group of kids and looking out on the crowd, Steve, you would be shocked how we could easily pick out the ones that we knew were struggling. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their, you know, their the way the other kids interact with them. The way yeah. exactly yeah. is that even we've never talked about that, but that's no. True. You can pick yeah. out the kids who are struggling, the ones that feel so different and different for a lot of reasons. And sometimes teachers interact with them differently, which is sad. Teachers are human, but we've mm -hmm. seen times when teachers are rough with kids that we're like, oh my goodness, whether it's a sensitivity to sound, like my sound on the microphone maybe made his ears hurt, or you know, maybe he's sensitive, maybe he's on the spectrum, and or he's withdrawn because maybe something I said triggered a thought about his dad or his mom. And maybe he's looking down and twiddling because of that. And there are fabulous teachers out there. And we see every day fabulous. But you also see situations because we're looking at a whole room and you see situations where you can tell that it's not an equal playing field on planet Earth on a lot of levels. Financially, with the school districts, all public schools aren't created equal. Then kids that don't even have a full tummy when they come to school or don't have a coat on a cold day or their you know, mom is still passed out from the night before. And I've had a story from a teacher who she would have to call and then go knock on the door and get the child to get them to school on time. Things that so many of us take for granted or I took for granted as a kid that my education was important. It's interesting because the ones who don't have our story are the ones that connect with it most. Does that make sense? I it's, think so. It does to me. Does it to you? Oh, good. Okay. So. <laughs> well, well, totally. Because you already have the story. You know, you have the story in your own experience in childhood of, in your case, Karen having your father and Hannah with you having both Karen and then her father of somebody supporting you, embracing you, encouraging you to, to be yourself. And these other kids, they don't have that, but they need it. But they yeah. need it so they connect. Right. They connect with it because it's like, it's this thing that, that feeds them and they're, they're visible there and you, you, you're able to spot them. But yeah, I think that's, that's what's going on is, is it totally makes sense. Whereas for other people, it's not, it's not that they're like, eh, this book's dumb. They're just like, yeah, I already get it, right? It, it's not a message they need to hear because it's a message they already know and they already feel. That's it. And when yeah. we do when we do these visits, it's also not just about the message of our book, which is interesting. Like that part is important. That's the most important part to us. But a lot of times it's just them having someone there putting in time, showing them that they're important. And you see that a lot more at Title I schools because teachers will tell us over and over that they just don't get special speakers. We'll do it without a fee, but uh, big publishing houses won't or they won't go there because they, they're afraid that they won't sell books. And so these kids, like when I was growing up, I went to a public school, but it was a public school that had money flowing through it. And so we had authors and illustrators and speakers. We had things like that more than once a year. And some of these kids have never had that before. And when we go, you can tell they're just just so excited that someone wants to come and spend time with them, someone who doesn't have to, which is really interesting. So whatever, like there are so many ways that people can do that, whether you're an artist going to speak to kids at a career day or I don't know, there are a lot of ways that you can touch kids that way, but they really appreciate it. We've seen. And then I think the bonus for us is we have this underlying message that just be who you are, because that's where the greatness lies. At the end of it, they're like, 
So I'm special because I always feel different. So wow, I'm gonna I could do great things. I mean, she was different and she wrote this book and she writes and she illustrates and and we give examples. Hannah talks in our presentation about Michael Phelps and most of them know who and the, and how he was bullied for being different and what was it? His big arms, his you know, big feet and his ears and his attention span, you know, his ADHD. And then guess what allowed him to just focus on those lines mm-hmm. in the pool and those big, long arms that allowed him to have that extra reach. So yeah, it's fun because they're excited just to get attention from someone. And then we come in with this not bang them over the head message. They're laughing, they're having fun. And then all of a sudden it's like, there, there's <laughs> they a, get it. Yeah, yeah, they get it. They get it. They get the lesson. And I love, I'm so proud that we don't hit them over the head with it. Yeah. I'm so proud Except that it's not them. like... Except what? Bad joke, but except for the little girl when our wind got caught, our sign she got did caught get in the wind. She did. She did get <laughs> it over the head. At an outdoor <laughs> book reading. Oh my gosh. I didn't know what to do. So I just said, let's give her a hand, a round of applause for being such a good Aww. sport. <laughs> oh my gosh. We've, we've been through it all. That's funny. Yeah. What I'm hearing is we're talking about kids who aren't often getting attention, focus, resources. They're not getting told, you matter, you're important, you're valuable. And so when the two of you come in and say, hey, we are going to give you our time, energy, and attention and share this with you, you're saying, actually, you do matter. Yeah, that's it. And we all need to get that message for sure, but not everyone does, unfortunately, But certainly your book and your work convey that message, not to mention, again, the value of of identity. And I think that's so well illustrated in the team between the two of you, right? You each have your own contribution to this, and that's part of what makes it so great. Yeah, Yeah. I I think we (laughs) complement each other very well. We both have our own strengths and weaknesses that- Yeah, that play. That play well, yeah, (laughs) with each other. So I think it's been just, I wouldn't want to be on this journey with anyone else. Neither would I. (laughs) (laughs) Most days. (laughs) No, all the time. And and knowing the two of them, I'll I'll tell you that that's legit. That's not them just saying it to sound like, you know, good and and polished. I've I've watched them, the two of them enough to know they generally, they do generally have fun together and enjoy each other's company. (laughs) Um, So what? is next for the two of you. I know your work has been upended and disrupted by the pandemic and all all that's gone on for the last couple of years or the last year. Feels like a couple of years. Um, But as we're starting to, to get vaccinated and things are going to at least look like some semblance of normal, what is next for the two of you? I illustrated a sequel to Make America Grape Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is Make America Grape Again 2, Orange You Glad It's Over. <laughs> <laughs> Orange we all. Yeah. So that that was definitely a COVID-friendly project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're always looking to expand our brand. We're trying to get our message out there in different ways that are inspired by the book, but not necessarily directly from the book. So we have tributes to California, which we call Land of the Weird and Wonderful. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get that in different gift shops throughout the state. But then going back to the book, we also have a sequel that's been in the works, twisting and turning for a while. And Lionel the Lemon goes on another adventure. So we're excited to get that rolling as well. (laughs) Yeah, the problem is we're at the point where I went back to revisit because I thought it was ready for her. Speaking of the edit. Speaking of the edit (laughs) and the journey. And we know you have to go through here to get to here. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm right here and I need. So I have put it away and I got it out recently. And I was like, oh, well, I kind of need a little, maybe not a machete, but a pretty nice size knife to cut this apart a little bit. It's going to take some work, but all the bones are there. It's just, again, the way we were with the first book and the creative process and going back and going, I can't be married to that. I see that was my idea, but I'm going to use that to leapfrog over here. I think we could pretty quickly get it rolling. So there is a sequel on the way. 
That's awesome. Any bits and pieces about it you are willing or, or can share about what we can look forward to on, on the next little adventure here? So in the first book, Lionel is learning a lesson. He doesn't know he's weird. He doesn't realize that lemons don't leap. And so he's telling all these characters who break the mold, you can't be doing that. You're not supposed to do that. And then in the end, a ginormous giraffe tells him, wait a minute, but you're a lemon who leapt. And so (laughs) he's like, wait, does that make me weird? And then he figures out that We're all a little weird, and that's exactly what makes us wonderful. So that's how the book ends. In the next book, Lionel's going on a journey. Lionel learns to choose weird. He learns, yeah, he learns to choose weird. (laughs) And so the second book, he is going on a journey to see the world, and he actually loses his beanie. We'll say that because that's kind of in the opening of the book. His that, beanie, that won't be edited out. Yeah, that can be. <laughs> that, yeah, that's going to stay. It's except he looks kind of bald without his beanie. <laughs> so, we have so issues. Yeah, we have issues. <laughs> so um, he loses his beanie and then he's on a journey to find his beanie. But on that journey, now it's Lionel's turn as he meets characters who are trying extraordinarily hard not to break the mold like the other characters, but to fit in. So to not be themselves, but to try to be something that they're not in order to make other people happy, most of all the mayor of the island that they live on. So Lionel then is now teaching his lesson that, no, (laughs) you can't do that. What's great is what makes you different. So he's teaching this time. He's not the student. Mm -hmm. That's kind of teaching in his own Lionel way. Yeah. You're sharpening up. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 want, no, want, no want, want. Yeah. He's just, he's, he's still snappy Lionel. He has a touch of sour. I mean, he is a lemon, right? So he has that little attitude. That sounds really cool. I love the, I like the core idea. I love that's so such an important message. Speaking of you know doing something that matters, because certainly we see so many people I have in my work for years who do try and force themselves to be someone they're not, and then has so many far-ranging consequences for all kinds of people. And so I'm I, I, I this re- this message resonates particularly strongly with me, and the and the work that I do. So I'm super excited to see as it evolves and and emerges into the world. That's going to be really really cool. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Yeah. I won't ask you for an for an estimated completion date though. No pressure. Uh, yeah, please no. <laughs> we'll never do it. It'll be done when it's done, right? The process <laughs> takes right. the time it takes. You'll be the first one to get a copy. How's that? Nice. Oh, wait, wow. Yes. I I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, recorded. Yeah, I can't I can't go back on that, I promise. No, you can't, not unless I edit it out, which I won't. So they- <laughs> So one thing I wanted to loop back on and ask the, the two of you about is have there been along the way on this journey of creating the book and putting it out into the world and all the associated things, have there been points for either or both of you where you've felt, I can't do this, or this isn't going to work, or had the self-doubt or things like that come up and interfere with your journey? Oh, I think absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that, I, yeah, I think that's something you battle every day. That was never my strength. I feel like I'm so much better at it now. And like I said, with this safe space with Hannah to bounce things off of, but just being vulnerable and, and putting your work out there. And then in the beginning, not just putting your work out there, but asking someone to spend money to buy it. So we started out with a Kickstarter. And for me, I was mortified. And Hannah being younger, and more, she's like, Mom, this is a way to do it. That way we get our money to go to print before we so we don't have to spend any out of pocket money. And so when we hit literally with Kickstarter, if you're familiar, when you get everything ready, and you set up the page and your rewards, the day you're going to do it, you literally hit publish, right? Like a button that makes it live. And I was like, Oh, no, I was terrified to push that. I was terrified to have that out there with family, with friends, with all my friends from home who were going to see it on Facebook. That took an exercise in bravery for me that I'm so proud of because it was wonderful and so many people were ready to support it and it got legs really quickly. And yeah. and then the more people 
were getting on saying, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you and buying one of the books online or something. It was like, this is this is real. I did something. My creativity's out there, our creativity, and people are responding. And that was just so the beginning of the journey, but it was already starting to feel good. Like, oh my gosh, there's no one's laughing, <laughs> at least that I saw. No one's making fun going, oh, give me a break. People were engaging and responding and liked it. Something that comes to my mind that I feel like everybody needs to learn if they're going to go through a process like this is managing the moments of disappointment because we have had so many situations where this really exciting breakthrough looks like it's about to happen and then it doesn't. And it's not for any reason other than Maybe it's just not I the right time. The, not the, the right the time. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, there was a situation years ago when we first got started and someone found us in San Francisco at an event and she happened to work for a children's production company that does children's cartoons. And she was fascinated by the whole thing and very, very clearly was interested in making this a children's television show. She told us we're we're in the middle of a different project, but this has a lot of potential, I basically. To pitch to PBS. Yeah, for to children. pitch to PBS. And we kept an eye on their production company. And for years, they were still working on that first project that she referred to. And it's something that just never happened. And it's not to say that it couldn't one day, but there have been lots of situations like that where you think like we're on the cusp of getting picked up. Like we did a wholesale show and some people from Pottery Barn Teen were really excited about what they saw. Another thing where it'd be this giant leap, but then I guess we've had plenty of things that do pan out that are really exciting. But there are other things that when they don't, you have to learn that that's not a reason to stop. That is just like learn from that experience and take it to the next one. And and one day, hopefully one of those (laughs) bigger breakthroughs will will take off. Yeah, I think that's such a good point because early on when we had the PBS lady, that was so early on and we were like, this is it, you know, and here we are years later, still kind of looking for the big breakthrough as far as getting it out more on a national level. We do, we sell, but but a little different, but we... Because every breakthrough, every breakthrough we have had so far is because we've had our hands in it, pushing it into the little avenues that we have. But as far as getting it out there more than like basically Northern California and taking it to something that's bigger than what we can handle, it that's going to take another, that's going to take more help than the two of us. So waiting for that big moment and not giving up in the meantime. Yeah. And just yeah. keep, and keep plugging away. And also, if there were any advice, like, especially with our business, we, when we got into Whole Foods, we were like, oh my gosh, we're in Whole Foods. You know, how many, all the locations in the region with that buyer was like yeah, Northern like California, Northern. Arizona, Nevada. It was pretty big. Yeah. And we honestly, financially, have made more at a weekend event than we did by how you have to price and sell your product to Whole Foods, and then they can kick back anything that they have if it doesn't sell after, what was it, six months or 90 days, or then they can return. And it doesn't doesn't matter if the books are damaged beyond you being able to even- Yeah, they definitely damaged a lot of books or consumers did and then returned them, which is interesting. Like you have this idea, Whole Foods, it's going to be this great big breakthrough. And then it's actually like, oh, we do better at our local boutiques that carry us, you know, which is great too. But so sometimes the small victories are really, yeah. you know, multiple small victories. Celebrate those. Are, small yeah, celebrate those, sure. I think, because you get caught up in these big ones and then you can get disappointed and it can start to make you want to pull the cover over your head and go, well, I'm just not a success. But you can't define success by that. So it's really learning. This comes back to process, right? I mean, we, that's been one of the themes running through this whole conversation, I think, is process and how important it is. At some point in our earlier in our conversation, Karen, you said you've got to keep moving forward, which made me laugh in, inside because that's one of my favorite phrases. But it's totally right, right? We've got to focus on the process because if you get too caught up in any of these opportunities or things, you never know what's going to make it work or not work or whatever. But at the end of the day, what I'm hearing is the two of you have kept 
going, kept doing things, kept pushing, kept creating, kept challenging each other and getting the message out there. And it is absolutely impactful. It's absolutely changing lives and making the world a better place because you're teaching people to value themselves and to recognize what they have to contribute. And on whatever you know scale it happens to hit, we don't control that part. That's so true. And think about how many greats through history had no idea. I mean, they died before their success really happened. When you think of some of the great artists or writers or you know many, they they so. didn't even live to see their success. So Hannah, we got to take our vitamins <laughs> so we make it to see how to see it. But and and now they've touched so many lives, and they don't you know they don't know. So I think that's exactly. Right. You just stick to the process. Keep moving forward. And no, I think it's so important to have laser focus on your mission. And on our worst day, you know, when we're tired or we're getting up at four in the morning to drive to a school or to go to an event or whatever it is, we know we're making a difference. You know, we're making a difference in a child's life. And I think when you have that, that just in and of, it kind of propels you forward anyway, because you just feel like I have to keep moving. There's someone that needs to hear this. There's someone that needs to hear this story. So it helps a lot to have that behind it. It's not just a book to us. Mm-hmm. It isn't just a book. No, it's. I don't. I don't think it's just a book to anybody who reads it either. Mm, thank you. No, it's true. All the stories of how it affects people and all that. It's obviously not just. A book. That's the thing with story that's so powerful, right? Is it's not just a story. There's messages there, there's lessons there, there's teachings. And these ones, I think, are really valuable and important ones that you're putting out into the world. Well, I personally feel, of course, you being a bookworm like I am, that the lessons in children's books are so underrated because they instill a lot of our values that we take into adulthood, whether we realize it or not. And if you look at just, I was just talking to someone the other day about how Mr. Rogers was so extraordinary and ahead of his time with what he was doing with kids and showing them like his episode on like where to put your anger, like showing them where to put your emotion or how the things he was doing. He wasn't just a little guy in a cardigan sweater. You know, there was so much more and and so many adults today are better for the time spent with Mr. Rogers. So I hope at the end of the day that there are kids that grow up in their adult life and they're a little bit better because they spent time with Lionel the Lemon. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any doubt that that's the case. I think you're just being a little too modest for your own good there, Karen. So if people, and if, as if they wouldn't want to, but if people want to learn more about your work, get a copy of the book or any of the other cool products and things that the two of you have, where is the best place for them to find you? So we have a website. You can search Google for Lionel's Place, L-I-O-N-E-L apostrophe S, Lionel's Place. Um, or you can go to Lionel's.place instead of .com and you should be able to find us either way. And that's our full shoppable website and more info about us and about us, about our school visits. Or you can visit our contact tab if you have a question for us. Okay, cool. Well... Thank you both so much for coming on to talk with me today. Love your work and what you're doing and really, really glad that you are putting it out into the world because it's a message the world really needs, I think. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for having us. Thank you for what you do. Of course. Yeah, thank you for what you do, for sure. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward. 